there's a good intention stated, just like there may be for us that we don't understand the intricacies or the inscrutable nature of God's judgment and wisdom, but at least God is coming to us in, in the pages of Scripture and saying, there's a good intention for everything. Well, what is the most broad statement in all of Scripture regarding this? Well, let's just speak to us, the good intention regarding His children, Romans 8, 28. And Paul is saying we defer to God in this knowledge, and we can affirm the knowledge because God has given us this knowledge that for those who love God, all things work together for good. There's the good intention stated, so much so that Christians should have the faith and the confidence and the trust enough in God to say, I know he's good intended. He's, he's, he's got good intentions, and he's well-intentioned, I should say, to do good for those who are called according to his purpose, which again reminds us that God has a purpose, and when he does things, he does things with a purpose. And we looked at the passage last week, or at least wrote it, wrote it down, we saw it on the screen, Ephesians chapter 1, that God works everything after the purpose or the counsel of his will. He consults himself and he says, this is the right thing. This is the good intention. We believe that God, as he reveals himself as a good God, and in that good plan that God has, he says there is a good intention here. Just like a parent might say there's a good intention for whatever it is a kid might be objecting to because it's painful. So that's the stated intention. That's all I want to do is you could put a number of passages up there. You can turn to Romans 8:28 sometime and look up every cross-reference you can find, there's plenty of expressions of God's good intention in the world that he created. He didn't just create it good in Genesis 1 and 2 and say, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good, and then say, well, it's messed up now and there's no good purpose. God is carrying out his good purpose throughout the pages of Scripture and states it as a good intention. What are some of them? And I just think as a cumulative case, let's look at some of the things that God specifically says. Here's some good that I bring from the things that you don't like. The pain. The sentient beings that I've created don't like these things, but these things end up doing good in these ways. So here's seven. Let's start with number one. Number one is that it drives us to him. That there is a stated theme throughout scripture that pain, as C.S. Lewis liked to say, say, as he said it on the death of his wife, that pain is God's megaphone, right? He speaks clearly. And of course, what is he doing? He's calling people to himself. He says, you know, you need to seek me and I'll let myself be found by you, but you've got to turn to me. You've got to seek me. And the problem is we're a bunch of sheep. We're a lot of wayward sheep that want to go our own way. And he's the shepherd saying, I am, as Jeremiah 2 says, the well of, of, of I'm the spring of living water. I, I can give you what you need. As Augustine said, as we quoted two weeks ago, uh, Right? Our hearts are restless till we find rest in him. He's made us for himself, as the catechism uh, rightly summarizes. God has made us to know him, to love him, to enjoy him. And so he has to call people to himself. And one of the things he uses to get that done is pain. It gets our attention. As 2 Chronicles 6 says in the building of the temple, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing his own affliction and his own sorrow, stretching out his hands toward this house, and then it goes on to say, God, please answer them. So think that through. Even the premise in Scripture of people calling out and making a plea to God and coming to the worship center is based on the fact that so much of that is motivated by the catalyst is people, as it says here, is their affliction and sorrow. We don't like to think of it that way, but think about all the reasons that people would ever even come to church today. So much of it is because they're in pain. And it's right that God would, as Lewis said, might whisper to us in our pleasures. 
right? And then that's true, but he's going to shout to us in our pain. And so there's something good about that. When people are given a sphere of reality and of function that does not, in our case, the visible reality in which we live, we don't have an invisible God present in our eyeballs or moving the inner bones of our ears. We don't have that kind of interaction with this God because he dwells in an approachable light. Well, how do we seek this invisible God? Well, one of the ways is through the affliction and sorrow of people's hearts turning to him. And that's a good thing. Matter of fact, when you're dealing with a non-Christian who's going through hard times, say, hey, one of the reasons God has allowed suffering and evil in the world is for you to see your need for the God who's ultimately going to set you up for eternity. So this is a good thing. And one day you'll look back on the affliction if it brings you to God and makes you cry out and plead in, in a prayerful plea to God. It will make you grateful. You will thank God for that pain. And I'll bet there's some people in this room I could give the microphone to and you could get up and tell your story. And pain was a very important part of God bringing you to see your need for God. Am I right about that? You can smile at me if that's true. And pain is a tool through which God brings you to him. If there were nothing else on the list, that would be a good one. The affliction and sorrow of people's hearts stretching out their hands toward God. In that case, in the physical manifestation of a worship center that Solomon had just built. God is going to, much like a parent out there trying to get his kid to go to football practice, if you don't think your kid's going to go and make a career out of football, why would you do that? I would think in any sport, whether you're sending him to the chess club or to play hockey, I assume part of your goal in the pain and rigor and discipline of something that's going to cause physical pain is to build their character. Well, that's certainly true of all kinds of pain. And in scripture, it says in James chapter one, verses two through four, that we ought to see our pain that way, our trials that way. The rigors of something that's in our lives that's uncomfortable, the rock in our shoe, the thorn in our side, you ought, actually ought to see it because you're not ignorant. You have a big view of what God's doing with these things that are painful. You ought to count it joy. You ought to consider it a good thing. When you meet trials of various kinds, and you know this verse, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and that's a great word, the strength of you hanging in there. Let that steadfastness have its full effect that you may be teleos, you can be perfect. You can have a completeness in your character. Right? Perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God is building character, and one of the things that he allows to have happen in the lives of every creature he's created is pain. Think about that. Even the angelic class. You don't think it was painful to watch the rebellion that took place for the elect angels. I mean, there's got to be in that experience something that changes everything. And so it is for us in the experience of pain that makes us the kind of people that God is trying to create for himself. And if you think about all possible worlds, I just think theoretically, and this is all theoretical, but you think about all possible worlds, there's something about the human beings that God creates through a painful world that is made that ends up on the other side, probably creating people to be hard to imagine that have that experience without the pain that is inherent in the fallen world that we live in. It certainly strengthens the people that God has made. They're not complete until they go through the testing of fire. They're forged and there's a burning of the dross away, if you will. Number three, certainly in a world filled with temptations, and to think about temptations, it's the thing that keeps us 
from falling into those temptations, the sin that we're supposed to deny ourselves. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, Paul says the pain that he experienced as a Christian, of course, and we know this passage as well, very familiar, 2 Corinthians 12, 7, to keep him from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited, which is an incredibly paradoxical thing to say. Satan fell to that very sin. The greatness of his, not in that case revelation, but his position of power and honor and majesty, his beauty, he fell into conceit. Paul says the pain along with the privilege keeps me from falling into the same temptation that he fell into. And now God is going to use Satan's messenger to accomplish in my life something that will keep me from falling into the sin that Satan fell into. That's just an ironic thing. That's a an interesting thing that God would explain it in those terms, knowing that the very problem with Satan was his conceit. Now, Paul can say, I can avoid that sin because of the pain that I had that even Satan, I mean, you could say it humanly speaking, didn't have that didn't prevent him from falling into the sin that he did fall into. To keep us from sin, discipline, the pain that's involved and whatever it might be that will keep us in that disciplined mindset is a pain that God said is used for good to keep us where we need to be away from the sins that can so easily entangle us, to quote Hebrews 12. 